0: If you have your copies of Scripture, if you will, turn to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 19 where we left off last week. Um, Some of you may be familiar with uh, Francis Schaeffer. Uh, He was an author, theologian, Presbyterian pastor, uh, founded a uh, training and retreat center. Um, Probably is one individual that I can say for me that put apologetics on the map at least in my lifetime and uh, when I say apologetics I'm talking about defending the faith and realizing that we needed to he uh, he wrote a book uh, in the mid to late 70s and he entitled the book uh, how should we then live if you've never read the book I would encourage you to pick it up And in the book, uh, he said, what people are in their thought and in their thought world determines how they act. Uh, The results of their thought world flow through their fingers, he said, "uh, and uh, through their tongues into the external world. And he uses an illustration in the course of that. He said, this is true of uh, Michelangelo's chisel, and it's true of a dictator's sword. Think about that. Our thought world determines how we live, how we respond, and what we we do. Uh, A couple of decades later, uh, Chuck Colson and Nancy Piercy uh, picked up on his book title, and they wrote a book together, How Now Shall We Live? Some of you may even be familiar with that. And it was a book on apologetics as well. Uh, and they echoed a lot of the same things. In fact, even said that uh, Schaefer was one that had really started their thinking. Uh, in the direction that they were thinking, and how do we defend the faith in this culture, a culture that was then and even now continues to be unsympathetic to a biblical worldview. Uh, What we know and how we think about what we know will determine how we live. I want you to hear that again. What we know And how we think about what we know will ultimately determine how we live. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews intends for us to understand regarding the things that he has been arguing along the way. In most epistles, authors will make an argument for certain truths and then will, in the course of their letter, help their audience make practical application. In other words, this is what we know And now what we know should translate into these things in the way uh, that we live. And this preacher, and I'm talking about the preacher of Hebrews, in Hebrews, this preacher is no different. I want us to go back uh, to verses 12 and 14 that we looked at last week, and then verse 18. Uh, But when Christ had offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Where there is forgiveness Of these, and pointing back to the sin, we're looking back at verse 18, this is verse 18, where there is forgiveness of sin, there is no longer any offering for sin. Remember last week from our text, we came to understand that the ground for our forgiveness is in the once and for all sufficient sacrifice made by Christ. A sacrifice of his own life, a shedding of his own blood. It's the reason that you heard us sing just a moment ago, again, about the blood of Christ. It is irreplaceable in the equation. It is irreplaceable in the equation of our lives. I want to interject here that his death, his physical death, wasn't from a heart attack, wasn't from a stroke. He didn't didn't fall out. No one strangled him. No. In the same way that a lamb found in the field, and we pointed back to that just a moment ago, that was found in the field dead, was not brought to the altar for a sacrifice, but rather a living sacrifice was brought. An unblemished lamb was to be brought specifically to the altar, specifically for the sacrifice, And then that lamb's life was taken by the shedding of his blood. In the same way, Christ, a living, unblemished sacrifice, came to the altar before God, as it were, and there his blood was spilled. All of the language about blood is not just something to say. No, his blood was spilled. And it was necessarily spilled that we would have life once and for all this was done. And we looked at that in detail last week. That is the ground for our forgiveness. The psalmist in Psalm 103 has this in mind when he penned, God Does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Make no mistake, the psalmist is looking ahead to Christ. Because what have we heard over again is that the first covenant that we have been considering was not able to remove the sin from us. It was not able to provide the forgiveness that was needed. It was a shadow of and it was a pointing to. But make no mistake, all of those sacrifices could have been in place and if for any reason Christ had not died, there would have been no removal of sin, no removal of guilt, and there would have been no forgiveness. That is how imperative it is that we hear and understand and know what it is that the preacher of Hebrews is trying to communicate. And he has done that. And this leads us to consider our text for today. Verse 19, we'll read 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This morning we want to give our attention to two fixed realities that flow out of our understanding of our forgiveness. In fact they flow out of forgiveness. And then we want to see how those two fixed realities inform our actions. In other words, how then should we live? In light of forgiveness, how then should we live? Because the blood of Christ has been shed and has now provided forgiveness, how then should we live? And so the first reality is this, is that we have access to God. Booney alluded to that last week toward the end of the message and said we would talk more in detail about it. But we have access to God. Notice in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's what we have been arguing is that the blood of Jesus has provided forgiveness and has opened up the door for something here. The key word in this text, I believe, is confidence. We have confidence that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to provide the entrance into the presence of God. How do we know that? It's because God has opened up access to His throne by Christ Himself. We began in Hebrews. His, look back in chapter 1 and verse 1. And, and, and don't, let this, don't, don't, don't let this fall on us in, in the way of deaf ears. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by a Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And listen to this. After making purification for sins, that's the statement for Hebrews, Okay? That's that's the theme. After making purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. We're going to hear in just a moment. Because He is there, those who are in Him are there. Because He is there, we, those of us who are in Him, have access, direct access, to the throne of God. Over against the fact That the first covenant never provided that access. We saw that last week. There was always that barrier between the people and God. Part of the barrier was their sin. That was the the greatest barrier. The other is the fact that God put up a curtain. The other barrier is the fact that He only allowed them limited access. And that was one day Out of an entire year that he even allowed a representative of the people to come in to his presence. And they knew that. They knew that there was no access to God except that one time a year. And as they looked ahead at that day of atonement, that was a big day for them. Anyone that had any knowledge and recognition of their sin understood the enormity of that day. That one of them, their representative, the great high priest of that day, that human high priest, was going to on that day intercede for them and step into the presence of God. And that was a fearful thing. Because the least thing, the least thing that went wrong, the least thing that was neglected Whatever it was in regards to God's instruction, there was the fear that he would not come out. That's the reason they tied a rope to his ankle is because they were not even sure that as he even entered into the presence of God, he was not entering in with the confidence that he had full assurance that he would ever be able to come out of the presence of a holy God. Because God was holy and he was not. And he would do everything that God, but if he messed up one little thing. You see how serious access to the Father is? We began our service today talking about our love for God and the psalmist declared our love for God and then we only traveled just a few hundred years after that and we have a group of priests that are still coming before God and declaring their love for God and God said, but you don't. You say you do. You think you do. And now that I have confronted you that you don't, you say, but how have we not? And we were challenged this morning to give consideration to that. How have we not? And yet we are told here that we have confidence to enter into this place of holiness, into the presence of God. We have confidence that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to provide the entrance into the presence of God. Uh, Early on in my training on how to share the gospel with Muslims, I was challenged to consider, uh, at least in the African culture, and it translated well, uh, that I was only able to get to the elders through some contact. As I tracked along the streets of Accra and then Kamasi, and as I entered into the villages, when I wanted to see the elders, I didn't go and knock on the door of the hut. I didn't find my way there on my own. No, we would find some family member, oftentimes a son, a brother, someone who had access to the elders, had access to the imam, had access to the chiefs. And that one would bring us in and pave the way and make it possible for us to come into the presence of this high one in that particular group of people. And in the same way, when we had opportunity to sit with them and to begin to talk with them about the gospel, we explained Christ in that very way. Why? Because of what the author of Hebrews has said. He has paved the way. He has made it possible for us to come into the presence of God. In fact, He is the only one who can make it possible for us to go into the presence of God. He has made possible our admission into the presence of God we have access to God we have confidence in our access to God because of the preparations that Christ has made through sufficient sacrifice but we're also confident we recognize here that we're confident uh, in coming into the presence of God because we're confident in the perfection of the son In other words, we should not be fearful that we will be rejected or killed because the one who went before us is everything in the way of righteousness and purity that we are not. We have access because He is perfect and it takes perfection to enter into the presence of God. I want you to think about that for just a moment. We'll look at it even more in just a little bit when we look at worship. But just think about the way we came here today. We came here in imperfection in in and of ourselves. We came here in imperfection. But we are able to enter into the presence of God with the confidence, not that He will strike us down, but that He will receive us because Christ is perfect. And then we can be confident that there will never be a time that access to God will be cut off. He is our eternal high priest. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He is there now. It isn't that He went there and left. He is there now. He is our eternal high priest. And notice how the author helps us see this. He writes that our access comes by a new and living way. In other words, Christ's blood, the ground of our forgiveness, is new and alive. Which points us to the fact that the old covenant is obsolete and lifeless. The old covenant was a shadow of the real thing. But now that Christ has come, and this is the argument of the preacher. He's saying now that Christ has come, don't go back to the shadow. In fact, Christ has come, there is no more shadow. Have you ever thought about that? The shadow comes as the one that is close to you. Uh, light is reflecting off of that and the shadow is coming. But when that person comes into your presence, what is no longer there? There is no more shadow. The person is there and Christ has come. But now Christ has come and the shadow is no longer in existence. And notice what the author says as is the evidence that the shadow is gone and access to God is open through Christ, the preacher points us to the curtain that once hung as a reminder that access was cut off. But at the very moment that Christ gave his life, the scriptures tell us that that curtain was rent from top to bottom. means that God, in essence, grabbed the top of that curtain and he ripped it apart. Forever removing that barrier. And now there is a new curtain. It's not just that anyone has access to God. No, now there is a new curtain. What did the author of Hebrews say this curtain is now? It is through His flesh. In other words, it is the torn, broken body of Christ that now is the curtain which we enter into. I think sometimes that's been misrepresented that this, that this curtain was rent and torn and now there's just access to anyone who wants to come. Anyone who wants to come and comes through Christ. His flesh is the curtain. The preacher refers to this flesh. The life of Christ is the new curtain. But there is a second reality we see in this text. Not only do we have access to God, but notice that we have an advocate before God. Look, if you will, there in verse 20, the latter part of 20 and 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, not only do we have access to God, but we have an advocate before God. We have a great high priest who intercedes for us. I was thinking through this text and I don't know if you had this question, but I know people who have had this question. And even if they haven't asked the question, they have spoken of it in terms as if there is still some question in their mind. And that is, you may wonder, if Christ has given us access to God, why is it important that we have Him there to intercede for us? That's a logical question, isn't it? If we have access to God and this curtain is torn and we have access to God, then why do we need a high priest? Why can't I just come and go as I please? Why can't I just willy-nilly step into the presence of God? Well, His presence there is necessary for several reasons. First, God's grace in allowing us access never was a diminishing of His holiness. We still gather here corporately today and we will wake up tomorrow if the Lord grants us life and we will live our lives before a holy God, a righteous and perfect God. And when we look at our lives, we recognize I have no right before God. My right before God is His grace in Christ allowing me to live Before Him without being stricken down. And together here with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Who are equally flawed. And yet we have come here today to declare our love to a God. And have access to Him. It never diminished His holiness. Our access to Him is through His Son. Who as we have heard already and have sung today that is through His Son who paid our sin debt and who is our righteousness. So it protects us at least from being presumptuous of His glory. It protects us from being presumptuous of God's perfection. And it protects us from being presumptuous of His grace. Christ is a reminder that we have to have God's grace to enter into His presence. That's the reason that when we gather here, we come here, I hope, with a certain reverence of heart and attitude as we gather before God because this is not just some light matter. And our waking and living before God tomorrow is not just some light matter. But there, Christ as our Advocate reminds us of His and the Father's constant care and love for us. In Exodus chapter 28 and verse 21, we hear about how when the priest was adorning himself to come into the Holy of Holies, he had this breastplate that he put on. And in that breastplate were embedded 12 stones. 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. It was a reminder to him and to the people that as they went in, he was representing them. They were attached to him. If you want to know how significant the tribes are and the significance of the fact of those individuals that that were born to that tribe, that's that's how significant it was. Is that they were represented by their original father's name. And they were not forgotten and they were cared for and they were represented. It's interesting that every person was accounted for before God. And the priest entered the Holy of Holies. And the symbol of this knowledge rests in those twelve stones. But here's what we need to gather. All of this in Christ language that we hear about in the New Testament, we are embedded in Him if we have trusted in Him. That's the reason why in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, we can hear, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ. So, reason why in 2 Corinthians 5.17 we hear, Therefore if anyone is, what? In Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, reason why in Galatians chapter three and verse twenty-seven, for as many of you as were baptized in Christ, you have put on Christ. The point is, is that there is a real union in Christ that was only represented by the stones. That was just a shadow. Of the true knowledge and care. That would come from God. So those are the two realities. We have access to God. And we have an advocate before God. Enabling us to be there in his presence. We are literally there today. Because of those two fixed realities. So. How then should we live? How does that bear upon us? Well, the author of Hebrews begins to tell us. Verse 22. First, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, how now shall we live? We live lives of worship. In other words, he says draw near to God. Because we have access to God and we have a great high priest, we should draw near to God. That is we should come to him in worship. We also know that this means that we should pray. Remember we read in Hebrews 4:16 and you may want to flip back over there, but we had heard back here some weeks ago Let us then, with confidence, that that again, we need to understand we can come confidently into the presence of God. We enter into with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So we know that we have access to God's ongoing grace and mercy for our living. Part of our worship, God is acknowledging our need for Him. In fact, if we did not come here today with a sense of need of God, then we did not come here at all to worship. We may have come for some other reason, but it wasn't to worship God because our access to Him reminds us of our constant need for Him and we are told to draw near. Access to God never was intended to put us on the throne. In fact, I believe that one of the great failures of the prosperity gospel is that it is a removal of God from the throne as if access to God puts us on the throne deserving everything that God has. We are not deserving of any of that. We have what we have by the grace of God. A God who rests on the throne. It was to grant us access to the throne of God. Our King. The one who does good and cares and loves and protects and provides for His people. This exhortation to worship is an exhortation that is good for us. God has directed us. To worship Him. How do we know that? Well, let's just go back and look at the beginning of the Decalogue. Begin looking at the the, the law. What does the law tell us? The very beginning. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. What was the point? Worship God only. And you know what? It makes sense. We often talk about the law of God being given for our good. To tell us who God is and to tell us who we are and to tell us the things that we would most benefit from and who better to tell us those things than the one who created us. We are simply and greatly His image bearers. So we should find it significant that the law began with the worship of God. God knew how he created us. Image bearers would what? Would naturally be most glorified and most blessed when they give their attention and worship to the one in whose image they were created. Doesn't that logically fit? Why would an image bearer of God How would he find or she find benefit from worshiping something from whom they did not come? It would make no sense. Just logically, an image bearer of God would worship God, the one who created him. He also knew that it would be detrimental and deadly for his image bearers to worship anyone or anything other than him. If we don't believe this, then we just simply need to look back at the worshipers of Baal on Mount Carmel. When we look at them and we hear the conversation that they have with Elijah, don't you find them foolish for crying out to Baal for all these things? And then what happens? Nothing. In the same way that we find it foolish when we turn to Romans chapter 1 and we think about the foolishness that goes on when people worship creation rather than the Creator. Logically, it makes no sense. And God knows that. But He doesn't stop there. He tells us how we should worship. The text points us to four characteristics or acts that are important for us in worship. First we are to worship with a pure heart. Notice that. That is there is to be no divided loyalties. Seems to point back I think to what Christ preached in his sermon. When he said blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. We are told to draw near to God with a pure heart. In other words to draw near to him with undivided Loyalties. Now, no, we point to our, our divided loyalties every week in our confessions. We realize that we struggle in this area. But notice we are told to draw near with an attitude toward that, but also we'll look and see where we draw near with an understanding that we are not that. So just again, to help you connect the dots of today, we started out with a declaration of a love for God. And then we said, but we fail in that love. But then we heard that Jesus did what? He said, I obeyed God's commands and I have done what He has said in every way to show that I love God. And who is it now that represents us before God? The one who loved God perfectly. Isn't it amazing to look at how every turn of what we are not, was fulfilled and continues to be fulfilled in Christ. Second, we are to come to Him in full assurance of faith. That is, we come to Him trusting in Him and trusting in His promises. Trusting God. That's the reason why we're able to come and we're able to bring our failures to Him, trusting in Him, because we rest in the completed work of Christ. Third, we come with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. I think this means that we come acknowledging our sin and resting in our assurance of pardon. Remember what we've already heard? That the old covenant didn't fully allow a person freedom of the guilt of their sin. It was a shadow of it. It was only in the death of Christ that the heaviness of the guilt was finally once and for all removed. I hope we get that. And I hope we get the joy and the fullness of that joy that comes from being on this side of Christ, on this side of the resurrection. On this side of his ascension, because as we trust in him, we never have to worry about that guilt. So the reason why in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, we hear what? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I hope you understand that our time of confession each week, is never intended to make us feel guilty about our sin. It is to help remind us that we are prone to sin. We do sin. And to help remind us that sin was, and listen, remains such a serious thing that it was only the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ, was able to provide forgiveness for that sin. But it is most of all our point to us to look to our assurance of pardon so that we will never fall prey to a guilty, evil conscience because the blood of Christ removed that. If you come in here heavy-hearted over sin, good. Don't come in here seeking to carry the weight and the guilt Now, if you haven't trusted Christ, you do. But that's the whole point of that. Every week is that we point to the fact that we are sinners and that in Christ you can be assured forgiveness and salvation. And then fourth, we are to worship having our bodies washed with pure water. Everything about coming to God points to coming to Him with purity in mind. The point is is that our hearts and our attitude in approaching God should be bent toward purity and holiness. It should reflect the one who we are in. But it also should acknowledge that He is what I'm not. And it is on the basis of that very thing that I'm able to worship God. And hopefully our hearts and our minds never become apathetic toward God. Now let's confess this. I have more times than I want to admit privately, but more times than I want to admit corporately come with little thought of purity before God. How about you? Have you ever just showed up at a worship service just kind of Just kind of spaced out and no real attention given to God. uh, Going through the motions. It's part of what Booney was uh, pointing to earlier when he was talking about uh, how we give what no one else would accept. Am I the only one that has ever been that way? Probably not. Probably not. But our heart and our intent in coming should be an acknowledgement that I am assembling together with believers and I am coming corporate worship and that doesn't mean that our thinking about our living tomorrow should be any different than our living today or our assembling before God today but we have made it a point as brothers and sisters in Christ to come here today together to give attention to magnifying God and how can we do that if our minds are not even focused on or even giving consideration to his holiness and his majesty And our impurity but yet coming desire to be pure. And it does point, as Calvin said, more toward a life, but it does point to the baptism as a symbol and as a sign of having been cleansed. Is baptism important? Certainly it is important. It doesn't save us, but it does show and gives evidence to the body that We've trusted Christ and the body giving evidence back by performing the baptism so that we could understand that as we gather, we gather as people whose hearts profess Christ with an acknowledgement that God is righteous and that we are clean in Him and washed with pure water. But there's a second truth that we hold to. Look, if you will, in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The word confession here comes from the Greek word that means public or or doctrinal confession. Believers should know what they believe and publicly attest to what they believe. I'm going to put in a plug here for our connect groups, and our connect groups do different things, but Brian had Texted me yesterday. And uh, had made mention of the fact, hey, when we finish up dealing with the Trinity and the Holy Spirit, uh, what do you think about us looking at a biblical worldview? Just kind of the, uh, the rudimentary things of a biblical worldview. And uh, I gave him a big thumbs up. Yep, we need that. We need that. Why? When we're talking about biblical worldview. What we're talking about, we're talking about doctrinal truths that guide us practically in our living, enabling us to discern the world around us, what is said, what is done, and what we see, so that we are able, one, to see the trajectory of certain statements, the trajectory of certain thoughts, and where those things will lead because we have an understanding of what God's Word has to say about life and knowing that God's Word informs us at every area in the course of life. That's what Francis Schaeffer was attempting to do and I think did uh, an excellent job. And that's what Chuck Colson was attempting to do and Nancy Piercy was attempting to do and others like them. And we, I will say this, we need to be serious about giving attention to these truths. But what is, the, what is this confession that the author of Hebrews has in mind? If we could boil it down to what we have heard from the author of Hebrews so far, I believe that we could sum it up in that Jesus saves. Remember that old hymn, we have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. I believe that is exactly what he's pointing to. Because at every turn, what have we heard? is that Christ alone is the one who saves. It is His atoning blood that is a sufficient sacrifice that God has received and has taken and has acknowledged and has blessed in His resurrection, in Christ's own resurrection, that we might have life. As believers, we are to confess that Jesus saves. Salvation is in His atoning work, period. Hear that. Is in His atoning work, period. Our access to God is in and through Him. We're reconciled to God through the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The person of Christ and His work. And the belief in that. That faith in Him. Trusting in Him. Giving our whole lives to that. It is what brings life. But I want you to hear this in the case of the Hebrews, and this is the point. It also kills. It also kills. We'll look at this next week, but if you looked at verses 32 and 33, you'll hear the context again for all of this. The preacher says, but recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. And he doesn't say this, but what we know to be true historically is, is that the confession of faith in Christ, while it is a declaration of our trust in Him and His work that brings us eternal life can cause what here? Death. Beheadings, hangings, drownings, firing squads, crosses, bludgeoning, being eaten by animals, being used as human torches. Those are real things. Those are real things. Imprisoning. We talk about that. Part of our reasoning for reflecting on certain doctrinal truths each week, such as those found in our catechism, is to ensure that we know what we believe. And that we know how to state these truths publicly. I will say, I believe a large disadvantage of the church today is its inability to clearly state the gospel. Why? I believe it's due in part because it has not been preached, it's not been taught. Moralism has been taught at best. Attempts to help people live a better life tomorrow has been taught at best. Just give me something I can do. Does it help? It may help tomorrow. But it won't help for eternity. And if you're like me, it may not even make it to tomorrow. In my ability to be able to carry out that moralism. No. It can't change the heart. Only the truth of the gospel. And the truths of who Christ is. And what He has done. And our trusting in Him changes that. Then finally. There's a third thing. We'll not deal with it in detail today. But I want to point to it. It may even be the most important thing. I'm not sure. But it is a life of loving community. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another. You see the progression of this? Enter into, come near to God, hold fast the confession of faith. You see the progression? Toward a loving community. Without the first two, there will not be the third. Notice what it says. Consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's go to the end of that text. The day. What day? The day of the Lord's return living each day, looking ahead to the day of the Lord's return. Booney used the term I, last week, Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord. Have y'all ever heard that? Yom Yahweh? Well, I had a uh, professor in college, uh, Jerry Wallace, he later became the president of the university. But... uh he would call his final exam day Yom Yahweh. So in his in the syllabus he would hand out he had all of his stuff listed out and in the very end it's Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord, his final his final exam. And he was a preacher of heart, so that's the reason that he used that term and he kept pointing toward that. He said, Now you know Yom Yahweh's coming, the day of the Lord. But then he would He would sermonize that in regards to our living and our faith in Christ. And he said, you do know that there is a real day of the Lord coming. Well, that's what's being looked at here. The day of the Lord. The day of the Lord's return. Which would be what? For all of those who are in Christ is going to be a wonderful day of entering into the presence of God. And for all of those who have rejected Christ or sought some other way to God, it will be a dreadful day. Well, in looking ahead to that day, there are things that need to take place in the course of community, in this community. What are those things? Well, let's look at them. We need to stir up one another to good works. We need to stir up one another to good works. We're to consider one another. We need to consider those who are waffling. We need to consider those who are unfaithful. We need to consider those who are uncommitted and uninvolved. We need to consider those who are unfaithful in gathering and those who neglect and don't value community. We need to consider them because we bear part of the responsibility of that. You know how we bear that? One of the reasons why, and I didn't say this specifically today, but I have on other occasions when we come here and there's someone here that we have seen here who is not here on that day. Do you know what we need to do? We don't need to assume the worst. But we also need to assume the responsibility number one, that they know that we care enough about them that we miss them. And they need to hear from us to find out, is all well? And if another week passes by and another week passes by, we should just assume that all is not well with them spiritually. And so we seek to stir them up to good works. Part of that good works is to be here. Now now this isn't the end all be all. But I can tell you this, when folks do not want to gather in corporate worship, in all likelihood... There's no private worshiping going on because there are things that take place here that cannot by God's design and will not take place individually or apart. I read this week, and I get this, and I had never thought about it. I can learn theology at home. I can pray at home. I can sing at home. I can do all of that by myself. But you know what I can't do without you? I can't learn how to love without you. I can't demonstrate love to the body of Christ without you. And you can't love me without me. You ever thought about that? We stir up one another to love and to good works. We do need to be positive. We do. And personal. We need to figure out how to stir each other up. We need to provoke each other to doing good. Staying after each other spiritually. Those who are struggling and praying for. We should stir each other up until... We have been engaged into being loving people who care, really care about each other. That is what we do. We stir each other up to good works and love. And how do we do that? By being here. By being here. Being together. Doing life together. Worshipping together. Singing together. Praying together together. Why? Because the day of the Lord is coming. And what has the preacher of Hebrews continued to point to all along the way? Is that everyone who believes in Christ needs to make it to the end. Martin Luther said, at home In my own house, there is no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the multitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. Through what? Through the coldness of heart, through the darkness of our hearts. There's more certainly that can be said in the course of this. But there are two fixed realities. We have access to God. And we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And it does make a difference in the way that those who profess Christ live. Remember what Francis Schaeffer said. Our thought world determines what we do with our hands, with our hearts, and with our mouths. And the author of Hebrews says, "Worship God, draw near to Him. Hold fast to the confession of our faith." In other words, we verbalize it in a world that doesn't want to hear it, and then we come together. To help each other make it to the end. Help me make it to the end. Help me make it to the end. One of the ways that we do that is we pray for one another. Uh, Our time of intercession today uh, is... For our two of our sister churches, one local and one that is not local, but that who prays for us regularly, uh, reached out to Phil earlier this week and I said, "How can we pray for you and pray for hill And he said, "Just pray that we would continue to be faithful in sharing the gospel." So I want us to do that today. I reached out to Mark Powell, pastor of South Point Fellowship. Mark and Mandy have visited here. They pray for us. We have visited them. We've been there and learned some things from them along the way. I reached out to Mark, and I said, Mark, how can we pray for South Point Fellowship? Uh, I knew some of what I would get, and that is is they have three pastors. One of them is struggling uh, struggling mentally right now in, in just depression. They've given him three months off. Uh, praying for him gathering around him encouraging just worn out and from that has found a low place in his life Uh, so pray for uh, a sister church who uh, pastor chris who is struggling right now with uh, with with just some just being just being depressed Uh, mark also asked he said uh, please pray for us uh, as we seek to help our body understand how to love each other well and care for each other, well, one of the things that we have found, uh, and and this, uh, and I keep telling folks, we're not there yet, but we are working toward it, and that is for us to end the superficiality of our relationships in the body of Christ. Because we will never help each other get to the end as long as our relationships are superficial. I I know we don't want people in our mess. I know we don't want them in our lives. I know that. We put up all kinds of guards. We don't want them to see the ugly. We don't want them to see and know the weaknesses. I'm guilty of that myself. But if I don't let you know my weaknesses and know my struggles, you will not know how to help me get to the end. You will assume that I'm going to make it. And that will be a wrong assumption for all of us. Does that make sense? So I want us to pray with that in mind. Now, this, now we're going to pray and we're going to add us to it. Because as we pray, uh, we have something that is really special in the life of the church happening. And we'll not be a part of it in the same way. But Michael and Kelsey are getting married this coming Friday. Michael Kelsey, we all stand up. Yes, yeah, stand up for us. Okay. Now, just remain standing for a minute. If we were in Ghana, we would have you come to the front of the church, and we would ask. And I think would be a a right thing in some cases. I don't think it would be right here. We would say before we ever get to the wedding. In other words we would ask is, Does anybody have a reason why the two of you shouldn't get married? Not just as a formality, but it would be a reality. We will not do that today. But that may happen. Some of you, whenever you're getting ready to get married and uh, we have more time with you, that will, that will likely take place. But we want to pray for y'all today because we know That the success of this church rests in our loving you and caring for you well. And you loving and caring for us well. Uh, And we want that to begin uh, even before Friday. uh, In us taking care of you well. But we want to be reminded of what's taking place in your lives. We love you. You can be seated. And we'll pray for you. Let's pray together. Father, you have told us to encourage each other uh, to stir each other up to good works to worship together to confess together to teach each other to help each other get to the end Uh, i thank you father that you have given uh, given me these brothers and sisters uh, to help me do that and thank you father that we are able to do this together We thank you today for Scotts Hill Baptist Church and thank you for Phil and his other pastors. We lift them before you and we ask Father that you would grant them wisdom and humility. Would you help them to be able to think clearly about the Gospel? Would you help them Father and direct their thoughts in what they do and how they do it uh, as they seek to reach uh, more people uh, for your glory? father would you work within phil as he preaches and others who are teaching that you would uh, grant them clarity of your word That they would stay true to it and be able to speak it with boldness Uh, father as they encourage other churches and help lead other churches and as they are involved in missions would you grant them uh, direction and clarity and what that is to look like to bring honor and glory to you would you help them Father, would you help them even now as they deal with uh, sickness and death and struggles and hardship? We hold our brothers and sisters up before you and ask, Father, that you would be merciful to them. Uh, Father, we are grateful today for Mark and Michael and Chris and South Point Fellowship. We lift them before you, Father, and ask, Lord, that you would heal Chris's mind that you would strengthen his body and help him through this season uh, father would you uh, cause the body to rally around him and not see that as a liability or even see that as a weakness but seek to support him and encourage him and hold him up that he may be continue uh, to do the work that you have called him to do thank you father for the way that he has given of himself tirelessly to the point of exhaustion father we ask lord that you would strengthen him father that you would grant mark and michael strength and help during these days as they serve without chris and then father would you cause them to be able to come together along with the rest of their elders to see their church south point fellowship become a loving community And Father, would you grant that for us today as we set out here new in life together. But Father, that you would work in us in such a way that we would come to see uh, that take place here. And even now, Father, as we live Michael and Kelsey before you, we ask God that you would pour your grace and mercy on them this week uh, as they uh, come before you and commit their lives together. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.